Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring and thought-provoking dialogue. My guest today is Dr. Parag Malik. Parag joins me from across the pond um, in his laboratory at Stanford University, where he is a professor. Having originally trained as an engineer, biochemist, um, Parag's research spans computational and experimental systems biology, cancer biology, and nanotechnology. With a PhD in chemistry and biochemistry from UCLA, Parag completed his postdoc at the world-renowned Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle. At Stanford, in addition to studying fundamental disease mechanisms, Parag and his group have been pioneering novel approaches for enabling personalized and predictive medicine. Most recently, his group has been developing model-based and physics-based approaches to machine learning. This polymath not only holds patents in the fields of artificial intelligence, proteomics, technology, biomarker development and nanotechnology, but also is an accomplished magician. He is a member of the Magic Circle and has performed frequently at um, the prestigious Magic Castle in Hollywood, um, performing in front of various clients, including A-listers to Fortune 500 companies. Parag. I'm delighted to have you on Extra Time. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. So you, you describe yourself as an interdisciplinary scientist, one who has developed multi-scale approaches to accelerate the discovery of diagnostic and prognostic protein biomarkers. Your, your work and breadth of experience stretches in so many different directions. Can, can you tell us a little bit? more about how your background has led you to where you are today, why those different disciplines come together and, and, and where, where your passions lie. Delighted to, you know, I tend to joke that I ended up this way, mostly through indecision. Um, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, when confronted with a crossroads of, of going direction A or direction B, I chose both. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, that happened, you know, going all the way back to high school, I was studying engineering and studying life sciences and really enjoyed both. Um, but, uh, you know, part of the reality is that I am just curious about many things in the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, uh, you know, beyond that, what I found is that the greatest opportunities for innovation uh, come through intersections and juxtapositions. Uh, you know, every field has its own canon. It has its own way of looking at things. And interdisciplinary thinking allows you to consider a problem from multiple angles and potentially to bring uh, new techniques to bear. Um, so, for example, thinking about biomarkers, uh, you know, an analytical chemist might focus on the measurement aspect and focus on the challenge of building the most precise and sensitive sensor, uh, whether that's with an ELISA or a mass spec or an HPLC, um, and looking at that problem in that way. Uh, an electrical engineer, on the other hand, when confronted with the biomarker problem, um, might frame it completely differently. They might say, oh, this is a remote sensing problem. 
or a noisy channel problem. Uh, and you know, these are problems that have a tremendous amount of work. Uh, they date back thousands of years to uh, literally people sending pigeons over uh, with cameras mm -hmm. on them to look, look and survey battlefields because they couldn't get there directly to understand what's going on. Um, and that's very analogous to cancer. I mean, we don't know where the cancer is. We can't get there directly. Um, and so we need to remotely determine what's going on at the site of the cancer. Um, so this is a very reasonable way to look at the problem. Both the analytical chemist approach and the electrical engineering approach are valid and useful perspectives. Um, but bringing them together allows us to think really creatively about some of these really, really hard problems. And so for me, that's the tremendous value of, of bringing as many different perspectives and disciplines to bear on you know, some of these really, really hard problems like biomarker analysis and personalized medicine. I can certainly see that um, viewing some of these really, really intractable problems through different lenses has a huge number of advantages. Not, not least, I suspect that you're able to, to translate and communicate between these different fields of thought and school that it enables the multidisciplinary approach that inevitably is going to um, identify solutions to many of these challenges. Yeah, and there is a huge educational challenge there in building interdisciplinary thinkers. Um, it, it is, you know, even if you just take the field of bioinformatics, uh, for one, it's quite difficult, um, to train a bioinformaticist. They need mm -hmm. to know math. They need to know computer science. They need sure, to know sure. biology. Yeah, um, yeah. and how can you give them all of that breath without sacrificing depth? It's a real challenge. And, um, I'm delighted to find people like you who have been able to navigate that challenge so successfully. Now, let's try and understand a little bit about some of that success. Your focus over um, the last few years has been very much in the field of proteomics. Pro proteomics, of course, a discipline that has seen a bit of a resurgence in interest as a result of some of the tools available at our disposal um, of recent times. Can you give um, our, our listeners who are um, eminently intelligent, um, but maybe not expert in proteomics, a quick primer. Uh, absolutely. Well, I'd, I'd say proteomics starts with the first off, it's important to recognize that proteomics is a gigantic field and there are lots and lots of applications of it. At its root, it's asking questions about proteins, um, but instead of asking questions about proteins one at a time, it tries to ask questions about all of them mm. and to say, okay, let's not look just at a single protein, but let's ask questions about how they all work collectively as a system. And so the challenges that proteomics faces are, how do I measure um, all the proteins and their diversity and their relationships with each other um, and, and do that in a way that is efficient and economical and scalable. Um, and the way that that manifests in cancer often is that we're asking questions about, you know, in the blood, for instance, when we're trying to find biomarkers, we want to ask what's there and how much and where did it come from? So if we're looking for a cancer biomarker, for instance, we might say, all right, well, are there proteins that show up in the blood um, that originated in the cancer and are not generated by other tissues throughout the body? And so the proteomics question then is to do as deep a look as possible and measure as many proteins as you can, and then go back and attribute where did their origins come from? Where did their kinetics come from? And really dive into those questions. 
And so what, what, has, what have been some of the challenges with, um, with uh, profiling these proteins that may be hundreds or, or thousands, I assume, and extracting relevant information from them um, that might, might inform a clinical decision? I'd say there, there are really three big challenges. The, the first is just uh, related to a technical challenge. It's limit of detection and dynamic range. Um, oftentimes the, the proteins that we care about, the ones that are shed from a tumor, for instance, mm-hmm. are in very, very low quantity. Right. Uh, be- because particularly in the early stages of a disease, the cancer is pretty small, um, you know, hopefully under the size of a blueberry. Um, and so how can you possibly find proteins that are shed from this object the size of a blueberry amongst your entirety of your body? You need incredibly exquisitely sensitive techniques to, to find those at all because they're in such low concentration. Mm-hmm. What's worse is they're in low concentration while things like albumin um, are there in massively high concentration. And so uh, you have this challenge of dynamic range of how do I see the little stuff when there's all this big stuff in the way? Um, it's just a tremendous technical challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, beyond that, there, there's practically a challenge of, of ease of use. The technologies that we have today uh, are very sophisticated, uh, mass spectrometry and similar tools, um, but they require a lot of expertise to use. Um, they, um, you know, in the right hands, they can perform miracles, but they're also very sensitive. They're very susceptible to, um, you know, technical variation and artifact. And so you have to be very, very careful with them. So they're, they're mostly in the hands of experts as opposed to being, uh, accessible to the broader scientific community in the way that genomic technologies are accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say the third challenge is really around cost. Um, those same technologies are quite expensive, and so analyzing a drop of blood is a non-trivial operation. And so if you wanted to do a large cohort study of, say, 15,000 patients, um, it's, it's from both a time and cost perspective, it's currently nearly intractable to do that with a broad-scale approach. You, you placed um, quite a bit of emphasis in your own work, and, um, and, and we've just mentioned the interdisciplinarity of, um, of bioinformatics on, on that field. How much of a, um, a solution to the field of proteomics, or indeed the use of multi-omic approaches to diagnostics, do you feel that bioinformatics is? I, well, so I think it's a tremendous aid. Uh, I don't think it's a magic bullet, but I do think it's a tremendous aid. Uh, you know, if you look at the just massive terabytes of data that we're able to generate these days, uh, it, it's astonishing just how much data is out in the wild through these large collaborative projects, international projects, things like the Cancer Cell Line Encyclopedia and Human Proteome Project. And uh, we have a wealth of data. What we don't have are great tools for making it easy to integrate across all of that data. And so I think that's a huge opportunity for bioinformatics to help us is to, whenever we do an experiment, not just be limited to the context of, all right, what does my small experiment say? But instead to ask the question, all right, my my small experiment is suggesting this. What is the weight of evidence from all of the other experiments that have ever been collected in the world that are accessible to me to be able to ask and answer this question? 
So, you know, my piece of, of evidence is, you know, is a piece. It's pointing me in a direction. But I should be able to draw support from the thousands of other studies that have been done. Sure. And I think that's the future opportunity of bioinformatics. Now, you've, you've spent the last decade or so of your, your career very much focused on, um, on early detection. In fact, you've been at the center of some of the major initiatives that have really stimulated this field and, um, and catalyzed it to the field of inquiry um, that we, we now know to, today. Well, what have you seen over that, um, that relatively short period of time in scientific development that enthuses you and gives you a sense that early detection of diseases is, is a near-term clinical reality? I've seen two, uh, two completely distinct things that I think both point in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is, if you go back 10 years, uh, there really was very, uh, there was a lot of skepticism around the role that early detection could play in cancer. Right. Um, could it really have an impact? Could it move the needle? Could it help save lives? And I think 10 years ago, uh, there were a lot of people saying, no, that's, you know, we're just going to do watchful waiting anyway. It's not going to change the disease course. If it's bad disease, it's going to be bad disease. And so don't worry about early detection. Um, But what I've seen in the last couple of years is we've seen very clear examples of where screening and careful monitoring and tools uh, like we're beginning to see in some of these new diagnostic modalities have shifted the needle. Mm -hmm. And in diseases like colon cancer, completely changed the disease. Um, you know, I think as, if we can push earlier and earlier and earlier, I think and we're getting more and more examples of this, where we can push earlier and earlier, uh, we are radically changing trajectories by um, you know, 30, 50%, uh, which we just didn't have that evidence 10 years ago. Um, so I think that's one piece is that we actually have the clinical data now to suggest early detection makes a difference. Mm. Um, and then so the second part of that question is, is can we actually do it? <laughs> um, right. So it's, uh, and I think what has helped me um, considerably over the last decade as well has been numerous examples of moving that needle as well, of new emerging technologies that are more sensitive, new emerging technologies that are more specific, um, that are able to get rid of the background of the body better, um, and hone in on these signals that are specific to cancer. So I think the convergence of those two things, sort of the clinical reality of this makes a difference, and the technological advances that say, yeah, you know, we can actually pull this off, give me a lot of hope that this is without a doubt, the future. Yeah, I think they're really good, really good observations. I, I was pondering this question with a guest only the, the other day, and I did wonder whether actually the, the adoption of diagnostic um, technologies by health systems is, is driven as much by the, the need to detect disease early as by the availability of, of therapeutic approaches, palatable therapeutic approaches to to the disease itself, and and I I, I had wondered whether, um, and I'd be keen to get your thoughts whether whether actually much of the uptake of or the much of the interest in early detection has been driven out of the uptake of immuno oncology as a therapeutic class um, in in the last decade or so, a systemic therapy that can be very precise um, rather than the, the local, regional, and surgical approaches that in the past we've been exposing patients to. 
You know, I actually think it is, um, I do think that it plays a role, uh, but I think there's a broader recognition that started um, very loudly in, in immuno-oncology, but has spread out to other other treatment modalities as well, which is that the earlier you catch it, the more effective the treatments yes. are. Um, and that's very true with the immunotherapies, is, uh, is that there are transition points where they don't work nearly as well. And if you can catch it early, um, you know, maybe not early enough for surgery, but early enough for broad treatment, um, that it, it concretely impacts the success of that mm-hmm. treatment. And so I think that I think that really has pushed people to want to go earlier, um, not just to not just to catch it to know that it's there, but to be more effective. Mm. Yes, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Now we all globally have suffered over this period of time the the, the COVID pandemic, and you know unfortunately that has hit the early detection of cancer probably harder than than many other um, services that. Um, hitherto were available. California certainly has stood out um, where you are today and stood out amongst um, the responses in in the US. Can you can you give us a sense of of what you're seeing on the ground? What has the response been to um, COVID-19? What what do you think the effect has been on on cancer services and indeed the field of early detection there? Yeah, I, I think it's been I think it's been not just for cancer, but in general for general health. I think that people are neglecting their general health. Uh, they, you know, they're holed up in their homes and they're they're afraid to go to the doctors for their routine checkups. And so we're seeing uh, a very concrete consequence of that in in people, uh, you know, coming into the clinic with later stage disease um, because they didn't go in for their yearly checkup as early as they might have been, and they're now waiting for severe symptoms before they go to the doctor. Um, so I think it's having a really concrete and terrible impact on on diseases like cancer, um, really just because people's health habits, which already may not have been great, um, and monitoring habits, which already might not have been great, were further stressed and challenged, and you had this additional layer of uncertainty and anxiety about going into the doctor's office. Yeah, I, I, I very much hope that um, that we're able to start to find um, either vaccines or therapeutic approaches that um, are efficacious and start to get this terrible pandemic under control. Now, Parag, I, I it would be remiss of me if I um, if I didn't, whilst I've got you here, um, ask you about um, the the very exciting developments at um, at your new. Your new startup, Nautilus, which broke cover only only a few months ago. Is there anything that you might be able to tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I I I think Nautilus is is a very exciting opportunity, and I feel really privileged to be part of it. Um, the company has grown tremendously. We started it about four years ago, with the goal of democratizing proteomics, mm. um, making it possible for people to routinely and easily and inexpensively measure the proteome, um, which we believe will be transformative. Um, so the company's, you know, started off as a small two-person company and is has, is now over 50 employees and is, is cruising quickly towards uh, being out in the world where it can do some good. So we're really excited about it. Well, congratulations on in- incredible work and uh, a field that um, I think is is right for the the interdisciplinary and innovative approach that you 
you take. We we watch this space with bated breath. We're really rooting for you to 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 make a make a difference. Now now finally, uh, I and I I try to end on this question with with all of my guests. If you could pick three people to sit in your seat now, who might they be, and and, and what questions might you might you want to ask them? Yeah. So you know, I as I thought as I think about this, I I I have to confess that I am very impacted by the environment of the world today mm-hmm. in answering this question. Um, and so the three people that I would choose are, are really um, folks who have a perspective on today's world. Um, the first would be Pasteur. Uh, I mean, we are, when we think about the germ theory of disease and transmission of disease and how does one, uh, how does one become aware of it and study it, um, I would be very curious to ask him about his experiences in going from a, a place where you knew nothing and you had so much uncertainty to a place where, wow, we, we understand enough to have actionable consequence. Mm. Um, you know, in that, in, in that way, you know, the, later the discovery of penicillin may be a, a, similar, um, a similar vein to, to strike. Um, I'd also be very curious to to talk to uh, George Washington. Uh, you know, in the United States right now, we have a, a lot, uh, and and in the UK as well, um, we've had a lot of pushback about what is the role of government, what is the nature of society, um, how do civil liberties um, interact with our protection of society, um, for instance, in the wearing of masks and the, and the having social distancing, um, you know, someone who thought about the construction of, of a society. Uh, I think you might have a very interesting perspective on division and unity and disagreement and, um, and how, to, how to bridge all of those challenges to bring people together and, uh, and to think about ourselves as a unified society, even when we disagree with each other. Um, and, and probably the, the last person I would be, be curious to, to, to put in a chair would be Georges Méliès, um, uh, you know, who many people may not be as familiar with, um, but there was a, a movie uh, called Hugo that came out about him a few years ago. And you know, he is an accomplished magician and also filmmaker. And he has thought considerably about the nature of entertainment, and I f- which again is, is a vehicle and a force for bringing people together, as well as for communication, as, as well as for just lightening the, the world. And I feel like in today's world, we could really use that perspective on amongst everything that's going on, um, what is, the, what is the role of entertainment? What is the role in society of these kinds of communication media? How can we, in the midst of all of this darkness, remember that there is still light in the world? Three incredible human beings. Um, and, and what an amazing panel they would have made. It's incredible, isn't it, to think that, um, that uh, there was a time when we simply knew nothing about microbes, viruses, bacteria, fungi, and much of that understanding dawned upon an individual <laughs> um, uh, 150 years ago. Um, and of course, you're right, the, the, the political situation of today, um, I'm sure, would have 
would have raised an eyebrow amongst those that um, that <laughs> that established our our understanding of democracy and society and um, the way in which we engage with with each other and um, and and who who doesn't like a who doesn't like to be entertained who doesn't like to um, to laugh and have their mood lightened. Um, so three great individuals. Um, I applaud you there. They're some of the best I've heard. <laughs> Dr. Parag Malik, um, you've been a true gentleman. Um, I've learned an awful lot. Um, it's been an education um, and a, a fascinating uh, opportunity to talk with you. Many thanks. Thank you so much for having me.